Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Independence Coronavirus Podcast. I'm Lucy McInerney, Assistant Editor of The Independent. This podcast is about getting behind the headlines and into the issues that we are all facing during this COVID-19 pandemic. Today, I'm joined by science, nature and travel writer, David Quammen. David has also written 15 books on the natural world and the possible dangers in the intersection between humans and animals. And also my colleague Louise Boyle, The Independent's Senior Climate Correspondent. Thank you both for joining me. David, I'll start with you. Can you... Um, just give us a little bit of background of what we know so far and the origins of this COVID-19 pandemic and just how exactly it spread quite so quickly. Right. Well, um, we know that it came from an animal because that's where new viruses come from. They have to come from somewhere. Um, so when a new virus appears in humans, we know it came from an animal, a wild animal. Um, it seems to have come uh, ultimately from a, a bat, a species of horseshoe bat, uh, native to China, uh, because the genome matches so so closely, um, but the genome is not a perfect match, and there is some um, evidence that it may have passed through, spent some time, even some decades, in another animal, sort of an intermediate host. And on the list of suspects there are the pangolins. So it's possible that this is a virus that's a combination of one that has lived for a long time in bats and a shorter time in pangolins and possibly briefly in, in some other animal too, and then got into humans probably in November in the city of Wuhan, not necessarily in that infamous quote-unquote wet market, the Huanan seafood market, um, because although most of the first cases are associated with that market, not all of them are. So there's a chance that someone got infected in contact with a wild animal as early as November or possibly even October, and that this virus circulated in the city of Wuhan a little bit, and then possibly was carried into, as well as out of, the Huanan wholesale seafood market in a human. Um, and why did it spread so quickly? Well, I'm still trying to figure that out myself, but part of the reason was that um, there wasn't adequate preparedness in some of our countries, your country, my country, um, certainly. Uh, there was some bad luck, I think, in Italy, and there was some lack of transparency in China because they seem to have known as early as December that it was transmissible from human to human, and that crucial piece of information didn't get out to the rest of the world for a, a week or two. So when we're talking about these um, viruses coming from animals over into humans, I've heard that the term spillo spillover, specifically zoonotic spillover, 
what exactly does that does that mean and how exactly can that happen right well spillover is the term used for the moment when a pathogen that is living in animals passes from its non-human animal host into the first human victim that's spillover that's why my book from 2012 is titled spillover that is the crucial beginning point um, viruses or other pathogens that come from non-human animals and get into humans we call those um, zoonoses if they cause disease in humans we call that a zoonotic disease 60 to 70 percent of all human infectious diseases in the strict sense are are zoonotic um, and um, and the other 30 or 40 percent over a longer frame of time had to come from somewhere so they probably came from animals too and then eventually evolved into being uniquely human pathogens such as smallpox um, and uh, and so this is a this is a subject that's right at this this is not a fringe subject out on the edge of human medicine this is right at the center this is this is a big crucial subject that accounts for a lot of um, misery and death over the centuries and around the world but now it seems to be getting worse and louise from what we know and in, in terms of our experience and the research that's gone on into these kind of spillover events and um the diseases that have been caused when they've made the leap from an, an animal into a human i mean are there places in the world where these kind of things are more are more at risk of actually happening or or could could something like the COVID 19 have happened anywhere in the world I mean, we know we have these large biological diversity hotspots in the world, places like the Amazon and, and jungles, and that's places where, you know, the wildlife is very diverse. Um, and uh, the closer we get into those areas is how we, you know, these viruses can start to occur in humans. Um, but my understanding, and I'll click back to David on this one, is that this technically could happen anywhere. I agree, I agree. And that's important to remember. Uh, as Louise says, the uh, the greater the diversity of the ecosystem the more kinds of animals there are and therefore the more kinds of viruses there are it's a very natural thing there are presumably millions of kinds of viruses living in in wildlife in plants and fungi the ones that are in wildlife are the ones that concern us as possible um, disease agents because we're different enough from plants we're not likely to share their um, their viruses but so there are viruses living out there in wild animals and the more wild animals in a given ecosystem the more viruses the more disruptive contact we have with those wild animals the greater the opportunity for viruses to get into us um, could happen in the Amazon could happen in the Congo as Ebola and Marburg um, uh, outbreaks do um, there is uh, there is a, a possibility that the 1918 influenza the so-called Spanish influenza there is uh, some suspicion that that began on a pig farm in Kansas. So when people start talking about, well, maybe we should make China pay reparations for COVID-19, um, it always occurs to me that, well, does that mean that the US is gonna be prepared to pay reparations for the Spanish influenza that killed 50 million people? That'll be an interesting conversation. So it's interesting you mentioned that because I think there's an awful lot of discussion around, oh, these, these horrible you know, live animal markets that we wouldn't see the likes of here in, in the United Kingdom or really terribly much in the United States where all of us are at the moment um, on this podcast. Um, and then yet you mentioned the, the potential of a, a link between the Spanish influenza of 1918 and, and, and a Kansas pig farm. So when we talk about, you mentioned just there the disruptive contact 
between uh, humans and animals. What exactly is that kind of contact? What kind of interaction is it that's happening between these um, groups of humans and groups of animals that's leading to this kind of crossover between the two and the, the virus is being passed on? It can be a variety of kinds of contact. Um, it can be capturing um, wild animals and taking them to a market alive for food. It can be killing them in the, in, in the ecosystem and, and people eating them there for subsistence. Um, it can be simply going into a, a diverse ecosystem, cutting down trees, mining minerals, building timber camps, um, anything that brings humans into close disruptive contact with wildlife can be the cause. You hear a lot now about the so-called wet market in um, China that I was just talking about. Um, a, a, a wet market, Chinese friend of mine said to me yesterday, you know, you guys call these wet markets, but for us, these are just markets. They're a place where my father and I would go to get fresh vegetables, um, where you might go to get seafood, live or, or dead, where you might go to get domestic animals, where you might go to get a chicken or a duck. But in some cases, those markets also include wild animals captured from the wild and brought live to the markets and, and set up there in cages with all this, these other kinds of food. That is the dangerous situation. There are also, in China, there are wild animals that are farmed, that are bred domestically. For instance, bamboo rats. I visited a bamboo rat farm when I was researching my book and I actually had dinner, had a dinner of bamboo rat on that farm. They take steps to, for um, uh, hygienic um, screening of their animals so that they, hopefully they're not carrying bacteria or viruses. But if you capture wild animals from the wild, bring them live into a market and put them in cages adjacent to lots of other kinds of, of, of live or butchered um, um, animal uh, protein, then that is a risky sort of situation because they, they will be shedding their viruses through their mouths or, or in their feces and their urine and there will be virus that can pass from one creature to another and eventually into humans. I'll, I'll second what David said on, on wet markets. I think you know, there has been a lot of demonization um, of them and I think it's important to remember you know, millions and millions of people around the world um, are sort of, you know, survive from these wet markets and this is the way that they do their daily shopping. So I think it's really important to remember that. So then where exactly do we find that things like the illegal um, wildlife trade fits into that, Louise? The, the illegal wildlife trades is, you know, when we're, when we're looking at these markets um, that have a lack of control um, and we're seeing species that are brought, as David mentioned, they're brought from the wild to these markets and they're kept in unsanitary conditions. You know, species can be stacked on top of each other um, and that lets pathogens fly. And that's where we're getting, you know, the risk from. And so then there's also the issue, um, less, I suppose, directly, but it definitely does have provide a, um, a context for these markets is the loss of biodiversity. So. Um, David, when, how, how large of an issue is, is loss of biodiversity? It doesn't feel like it's something that's on the tip of everybody's tongue when they're um, discussing the, um, the pandemic you know, that, that we're, we're all living through at the moment. Well, alas, it's not on the tip of everybody's tongue, although I, I wish it were. Um, it's something that I've been flapping my jaw and waving my arms about for 35 years or so. Um, I think of there being three huge crises on this planet that three huge challenges that 
that we humans are facing in terms of dealing with the impacts of ourselves, of our own massive hungry population. And those three huge problems are climate change, loss of biological diversity, important for its own sake, but also important ultimately for human health, and the threat of pandemic disease. Those three are like three huge muddy rivers that run parallel. Um, it's not that one is the cause of another. Climate change is not the cause of COVID-19. It's not, it, it is in some cases, it's a cause of loss of climate, loss of biological diversity, um, even of, of a disease spillover. But um, essentially, these are three big rivers running parallel, but they're all draining off a snowfield on the same mountain, one great mountain, one great snowfield, and we are melting that snowfield and causing these problems. So they have the same ultimate cause, and that is 7.8 billion hungry, smart humans demanding consumption resources from the rest of the natural world. And so then, Louise, when we're talking about loss of biodiversity, boil that down to brass tacks. What exactly does that mean? I mean, this means if we break down the word of biodiversity, first of all, we're looking at biological diversity. I mean, it's, it's, that's as simple as it breaks down. Um, and that's really everything in the world. I mean, I, I read earlier a great term for it. It's described as um, the library of Earth. I mean, if we just think of ourselves as part of it and every other species, plant, animal, fungus, you name it. Um, so when we talk about the, the loss of biodiversity, we're really pushing into the whole makeup of the planet. Um, I, earlier I read that, you know, when we look at even the Amazon, for example, we're apparently going through each year, something like 8 million football fields, or I think eight over, overall 8 million football fields size of the Amazon every year. And we're using 25% more resources than we can actually sustain. So, I mean, it's a huge problem that really should be on the tip of everyone's tongue. And think about it in some specific ways. Think about a world 40 years from now, two generations, from us, um, children growing up in a world where there are no polar bears, there are no gorillas, there are no chimpanzees in the wild, uh, there are no tigers in the wild. There's a vastly reduced diversity of insects. There are, there are many, many fewer butterflies and moths. The bees are missing. The songbirds have been reduced to a few species that live well in human cities. That's another way of thinking about the losses of biological diversity. And David, what exactly would you say are the industries that have the, the greatest impact on biodiversity? I mean, I suppose you could say who's doing the worst for biodiversity and actually is anyone doing a good job for biodiversity? I would no. imagine the answer is no. The answer is no, yes, um, in, including me and, and you know, all four of us probably, uh, there's enough responsibility to go around. Um, but the obvious, uh, it's consumption of all sorts. The, the obvious things that people think about are timber. People are cutting down the trees in the Congo Basin, cutting down the trees in the Amazon, and they're burning them. And that's a loss of the, the structural loss of the forest. And with the loss of the forest goes loss of of countless forms of biological diversity, from monkeys to, to beetles and, and, and ants and bacteria. Um, so, but it's not just uh, the question of whether we are customers for tropical hardwood. Um, there are people who are going into these places as, as agents for us, for our, for our desires and our consumptive patterns. So all of the choices that we make, what we eat, uh, what we wear, 
um, what we buy in terms of, terms of consumer goods, how many children we have, if we choose to have children, how much we travel, how much fossil fuel we use. I travel too much. I'm trying to figure out ways to travel less. Zoom is one answer to that. Um, uh, all of these have effects. If we own a cell phone or, or a laptop computer, we are customers for a mineral called coltan, C-O-L-T-A-N, necessary for tantalum capacitors in these little machines. Where does that come from? Just a few places on earth, including mines in the Eastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, not far from Kahuzi Biega National Park in Itomwe uh, Natural Reserve, where there are lowland gorillas and monkeys of all sorts of species, and bats of all sorts of species, and rodents. And so if we are a customer for coltan, we are commissioning miners to go in there and mine that for us. What are they going to eat while they're in there? They need protein. They're going to eat wildlife. Um, another big issue is not on top of the natural resources that we're taking is the fact, I think by 2050, there's going to be about 9 billion people on the planet. They all have to go somewhere. They all have to move into areas, you know, urban expansion is, is increasing. And um, so that's another, you know, on top of the natural resources that we're, that we're taking. What about then the other side of things? It's not only illegal practices that are having this negative impact. So do we also need to be worrying about, say, for example, the legal trade in animals, David? Well, yes. I mean, and not just wild animals. Um, factory farming of domestic livestock, massive factory scale production of pigs, factory scale production of chickens, um, of beef. Yes, these, these also um, have their impacts. They have their impacts in terms of climate. Um, you know, the, the, the domestic cows around the world um, uh, um, release a whole lot of methane. Um, and that's a not insignificant factor in climate change. Um, pig farming has been implicated as in a, a circumstance in which viruses from um, reservoir hosts, such as giant fruit bats in northern Malaysia, may spill their viruses into massive corrals of factory farmed pigs. And from the, from the pigs, those viruses then pass into humans, the, the pig farmers and the pork sellers and, and <clears throat> middle people. Um, that's the way a very nasty virus called Nipah virus in Malaysia and, um, got into humans in 1998. Um, so there are issues with food production um, and with animals in addition to, to wild animals. Um, that that um, that need to be need to be addressed. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. And so I'll put this question to, to both of you. And I suppose, Louise, if you want to take a, a stab at it first, do you, do you fear that this is going to happen again? It's, it sounds as though it's a fait accompli that it is going to happen again. This whole idea of a zoonotic spillover event. I mean, I will defer to David on this, who has the decades of research, but having spoken to David previously and also... Um, having spoken to you know many other experts here in planetary health and various other fields, I mean yes, it does seem like that this there is a great potential for this to happen again. When I uh, when I was researching spillover uh, 10, 12 years ago, I asked a number of scientists um, whether there would be a next big one, a next global uh, pandemic. Um, and they told me, yes, yes, there will be. Uh, what will it look like? Well, they said it'll be, a, it'll be caused by a virus. That virus will come out of wildlife, some kind of wild animal, very possibly a bat or, or a primate. What kind of virus? Well, one that evolves quickly of the sort uh, um, that has high evolutionary capacity to adapt to new hosts, such as an influenza or a coronavirus. Where might that happen? Well, um, uh, maybe at a wet market, for instance, in China. They told me this 10 years ago. So they predicted this, this one is, from the point of view back then, this one is the next big one. But will there be another next big one now? Well, we can be sure that there will be more spillovers. There will be more viruses spilling over from non-human animals into humans. It might not be inevitable that the next, that, that future spillovers turn into pandemics. We have it in our power to establish systems of surveillance and international networks of transparent communications among governments and sharing of response resources so that it's possible that as future spillovers occur and they turn into outbreaks of you know, 20 or 30 people very sick from a strange new fever that's caused by a, an unknown virus in a village in Africa or a city in Southeast Asia, it's possible that we could respond to that quickly and contain that so that the spillovers that turn into outbreaks don't progress to epidemics and pandemics. We could do that. And that should be our goal to say this one is the last spillover that's going to turn into a pandemic. By God, we know how to control this. We know how to stop it. We're going to expend the resources and the political will to make sure that this does not happen again. So if we were to take it back from the level of, say, national uh, sovereign governments, etc., if we're just to look at it from an individual's point of view, is there anything that the individual can do to alleviate that threat somewhat or to 
better protect ourselves from this happening again? I would say yes, and I mentioned this already, the choices that we make, the individual choices that we make, let alone um, whom we vote for, or what sort of governmental leaders we have, but our individual choices, yes, consumption, uh, reproduction, how many children we have, if we choose to have children at all. Um, I already mentioned we've got 7.8 billion. Louise mentioned we're gonna have at least 9 billion before it flattens out. That's too many. That's unsustainable on this planet. Um, so that's really one of the first um, decisions that everybody needs to make. And then there are decisions about um, what you eat, how much meat you consume. Maybe, you know, uh, it makes sense to uh, follow um, Sir Paul McCartney and uh, cut down. Of course, we'd all like to have his private chef. It would be easier for us all to be vegetarians or vegans if we had Paul's private chef. Um, but it shouldn't take that. We could still, we could still dial back modestly on the amount of eat, meat we eat, and that would help. Uh, and likewise, how much we travel, how much I travel, how many times I fly across an ocean. I have a responsibility to, to think carefully about the impacts of the things that I do, likewise all of us. And Louise, then what would you say to governments, to global organizations, they need to do that they didn't do this time around? Because it feels as though, obviously each country has had to, um, react differently to the pandemic at different stages. But it feels as though there was really no moment at which the world came together under say the auspices of the UN or the WHO and said, right, when you're, this is how we're dealing with it. These are the steps you follow depending on where you find yourself in terms of the curve. How do we make sure that that's not, that this absolute, I suppose, mess is what you could describe it as, doesn't happen again? I mean, if we look at it at the moment, we have, there is no global legal framework that deals with wildlife trafficking. We have one through the UN that deals with you know, human trafficking, deals with drug trafficking, deals with arms, but we don't have anything for wildlife trafficking. There are some agencies that in part deal with it across borders and then you have, you know, it's left to national governments. But I think, you know, from my point of view and from many, many other people who have said this, um, I think there needs to be some sort of international resolution addressing, you know, the illegal trades in wildlife. That's one thing that we should be targeting. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's it's interesting to to think that we we have so much infrastructure in place for dealing with, as you've mentioned, arms, human trafficking, all that other stuff, and yet wildlife trafficking is not something that we've really come up with any form of formal kind of formalized structure for. And I mean, I know you know the Independent are now running the Stop the Wildlife Trade campaign and as part of the awareness we're raising, hopefully that's, that's going to change. I mean, David, do you get any sense that the United Nations or the, the WHO are, are going to really push for, for proper concrete change going forward? Um, no, I don't see any evidence of that. And I unfortunately see a counter trend with the, um, the US um, leading in exactly the wrong direction. Um, you know, charging to the to the rear under our current president, uh, who doesn't even want to be involved with the World Health Organization um, and scarcely with the UN. So uh, we need better, more visionary uh, national leadership. Um, it'll be interesting if it, it 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 turns out that this particular virus uh, has some connection with um, pangolin viruses. Whether it in fact uh, did spend some time in pangolins because. Pangolins, as Louise knows, 
um, are the most trafficked group of wild mammals in the world. There are eight species of pangolin, four in Africa, four in Asia, and there's just a devastating traffic in these, these amazing, charming animals, these scaly anteaters, as they're sometimes called, um, and they're trafficked for their scales, they're trafficked for meat, uh, they're flowing out of Africa toward China, um, and if they brought this virus to the world, because we abused them, as my Chinese friend that I just mentioned did a, an op-ed for the New York Times uh, two months ago, and it was titled the Revenge of the Pangolins. So there's an irony there that might sink in uh, and, and help to spur people toward the notion that we need um, international agreements limiting the wildlife trade, agreements um, with legal force with teeth. I think it's interesting as well the, that, as you mentioned, they, they, these pangolins, for example, they flow out of Africa where it, it is their natural habitat into China. How do we avoid demonization of certain countries and instead get the actual natural buy-in from the leaders of these countries who, I suppose, on a bad day, feel as though everybody is pointing the finger of blame at them? Mm -hmm. David, what would you say is the best way to, to get I that buy-in? I, th I think the, the beginning of that is, again, what I've been flapping my jaw about this morning, that um, we, we all have, uh, or this afternoon, we all have um, a share of the responsibility. We all are consumers. Even if we're not buying a pangolin for food, even if we're only consuming fossil fuel, we're consuming pork or chicken, that is part of this same problem. We need to own some responsibility for this whole thing. It's not all about somebody in China who who purchased uh, an animal in a market that happened to be held adjacent to a bat. Um, it's things that we are all doing in different degrees, in different forms. And um, if we own that fact first, then we have a basis to begin a conversation with, with the leaders of China saying, look, wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be good if you limited the trade in wild animals brought from the wild, and they have, they have limited that now. They have constrained that, but we need for them to keep those constraints on and to enforce them. But to have that conversation with them, we need to, um, we need to step up and own part of the problem ourselves. I feel as though, whilst absolutely honest and brutally honest, I feel as though I do need to try and end our discussion on a note of hope um, so that we all have a reason to keep the, our collective chins up and, uh, kind of keep striving for the future and not feel like we should just give up because no matter what we do, the next zoonotic spillover is just around the corner. So um, Louise, what would you say is um, the idea or the news story could be um, that's giving you the most hope at the moment? Um, I'll, well, I'll start with by saying just as an, as an overarching idea, obviously, you know, it really goes without saying this is the most traumatic time for so many people in a variety of ways, but it's also a point of us being able to see the damage unfold and see the consequences of not taking action. So I think in a general sense, um, you know, that that is something we're at this kind of tipping point now where we can make change. And there does seem to be some momentum, um, perhaps not as quickly uh, as we hope, but there does seem to be some momentum. Um, in terms of the news stories, I mean, you know, the, US, the EU, I'm sorry, last week, uh, you know, announced its, bio, its biodiversity plan for 2030. Um, you know, there's rules in there about, you know, protecting more of the EU. We know that Wuhan has introduced a ban on all wildlife there. It lasts for five years, but, you know, if that is 
you know, made more permanent, that's a good thing. Um, again, back to the EU, that is, there's some good ideas there, they're not law yet, but that could be, you know, made more permanent. I think there is some reason for hope, um, but I don't know what David thinks on that. <laughs> I insist on hope, not because it feels natural to me, but because I believe in it. I don't think that hope is a psychological condition. I think hope is an act of will. Um, and although there are 7.8 billion of us and we're hungry and greedy for resources, we're also smart. We're capable of some amazing things besides cutting down forests and, and eating pangolins. We're capable of iambic pentameter. We're capable of Gregorian chant. We're capable of Champion League soccer, football. We're capable of grandmaster chess. And we're capable of creating vaccines and international systems that can bring us through this to the other side. And eventually, I hope toward a, a more balanced relationship with the natural world. So, um, so I think there is good news. The good news is that we're smarter than a column of army ants. We resemble a column of army ants in some ways, but we can be smarter and wiser than a column of army ants. And that's where hope lies. Well, I think that is um, hope, a, a good positive note of hope on which to, to end our discussion today. And, and thank you both so much for, for joining me. Remember that you can get in touch with the podcast team here to ask questions or suggest future subjects for discussion. So please email the coronavirus podcasts at independent.co.uk. Alternatively, you can use the social media hashtag Indie Coronavirus Podcast. That's Indie with a Y. We would love to hear from you. You can read all the latest news and information about coronavirus on our website, independent.co.uk, as well as all of the latest stories, mainly from Louise, about our Stop the Wildlife Trade campaign. There's also a new daily email newsletter you can sign up to to get all of the latest COVID-19 news and advice delivered straight to your inbox daily. There's also more information on that on our website. Please subscribe to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen and leave us a rating so more people can find us. Thanks for listening.